Amen. So thank you, Ashley. I did not introduce myself before, so let me do that. My name is Drew, and I'm a pastor here at Redeemer. It's good to be with you this morning, good to be here in worship together. We are continuing in a series that we've been doing. Actually, all fall, we did a series through the book of Isaiah. Uh, But for Advent, we've gone back and picked out the passages in the prophet that are explicitly pointing us towards the coming of the one that we celebrate at Christmas. And so this morning, we're actually going to combine two because there's so many of them that we couldn't possibly get to them all. But there's similar themes in these two passages from Isaiah chapter 42 and Isaiah chapter 53, which will be, both of them probably be pretty familiar to you if you're familiar with the scriptures. And so let's read together. You can open your Bible and do that, or you can just grab the worship folder. It's printed for you there. It'll also be on the screen behind me if you're at home worshiping with us. Uh, it'll be on your screen as well uh, as we read together from God's word. The prophet says this in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom I, my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. And then Isaiah 53, he, the same servant, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As the one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, not us, him, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Our theme this week is love. Because, of course, anytime you're putting together themes around Christmas time, love needs to be one of them, doesn't it? This this time of year is supposed to bring out love and generosity from us. We send cards to one another. We bake cookies for the neighbors, or maybe just to eat ourselves. In my house, the neighbors hardly ever get the Christmas cookies because they're gone before we can get them to them. We buy gifts for one another. Businesses give Christmas bonuses to their employees. It's the most wonderful time of the year, as the songs sing, because we seem to behave differently than we do the rest of the year. But the antithesis to all of that, Christmas cheer, whatever you want to call it, the the antithesis to all that is the character of Ebenezer Scrooge, immortalized by Charles Dickens in his Christmas story. Now, no offense to Elf or Home Alone or... Die Hard, which is a Christmas movie, if there's a debate about that. 
you know, but it, that is the best Christmas story. Now, the, the, the movies haven't always been great, but it is definitely the best Christmas story. My favorite version, and this dates me quite a bit, uh, is Bill Murray's movie from 1988, Scrooged. It was on last night, I knew, I, and, and so I watched it even last night. Scrooged. So the idea of Scrooge made a verb, I guess, Scrooged. Uh, and so I, I love that. I love that film. And that character, everybody knows who that character is. So here's my question to you this morning. Are you ever kind of Scroogey? <laughs> Scroogey, yes, I said it. It's a word. If they can make it a verb, I can make it an adjective. Actually, it's in the Urban Dictionary. So there you go. I, looked, I actually looked this week. Are you ever kind of Scroogey? I mean, if my kids can make up words just out of thin air, like pog and bet and whatever, then I can make up words too, okay? And this is, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Are you ever kind of scroogey? Do you ever resent, kind of, let's be honest for a minute, just a moment of honesty, do you ever kind of resent all the stuff associated with Christmas? Are you ever relieved when it's all over? Do you ever want to bah humbug the whole thing? Do you ever envy him for his freedom to just be as grumpy as you feel? Now think about the transformation that happens to Ebenezer Scrooge in the story. Christmas can do that to you too. And not just the big things, not just your selfishness and your greed, but even something as simple as your touchiness, your irritability, the way you can live with the grumps. The truth of Christianity has unique power and resources to cause you to be a person who, even though you're tempted and, and at times like that, to become a person who begins to overflow with joy and love and generosity, not just during these few weeks, but all the time. But it's not the spirit of Christmas that does that. I don't even know what that is. It's not the feeling of Christmas. You have to become acquainted with the person of Christmas. And that is what Isaiah is trying to do for us. Isaiah 42 and 53 are two examples of what the scholars call the servant songs of Isaiah. And in them we're introduced to a person, this, this figure of the servant. It's a series of passages, those servant songs are, in Isaiah's prophecy about the coming rescuer, who was the child that we saw in chapter 9, and the king in chapter 11. He's also the servant, God's representative, the one who would carry out his purposes in the world. But this one, this Messiah, this rescuer ruler, he would come serving, not ruling, not fighting, serving the servant. Imagine that would come serving, and that was the transformational surprise. And it's the transformational surprise for us as well, too. God's servant comes serving. That's what we want to talk about this morning. And we want to see it under three headings, that the servant comes serving because he comes from love, and he comes with love, and he comes to love. And when you see him serving coming from love and in love or with love and, and to love, it can make you a person that overflows with love and generosity as well. And that's good news. And so let's look at it together. Okay, first, the servant comes serving because he comes from love. Now, this is before we even get to the text, really, but it is foundational to what not only this text, but all of the Bible teaches us. The claim of Christmas, let's be straightforward. If you're here and you're not familiar with what Christians believe. Let me just be direct with you. The claim of Christmas, the claim of Christianity is that the child 
born in Bethlehem, was, to use the language of the Nicene Creed, the Son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. That child was God himself. Notice the image that we've chosen for today. If you see it on the screen behind me, just above that worthy one, it's a, it's a classic image of the, the Trinity, a symbol of the Trinity. Christians claim that God is not solitary, that he is Trinity. He is eternally a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means he is love. What has God been doing from all eternity? Loving. Michael Reeves, in a book, that is truly one of the best books I've ever read. It's for you there at the bottom of your page in the resources uh, section that I gave you. Uh, it's called Delighting in the Trinity. He compared the gods of the other religions with uh, the God of Christianity, with the Trinity. And he said, with the other gods, before creation, they were all alone, solitary from all eternity. Thus, with nothing and nobody to love. And therefore, love could not be said to be their heartbeat. That Such gods could only love themselves. And that's exactly what you find in all of the other world religions, gods who are inward-looking and selfish and moody and capricious. But if God is Trinity, then he is not essentially lonely. He has been loving from all eternity as the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit. And so love is not a strange or novel thing at all. It is, the, it is at the root of who he is. It's a part of his essence. And so the Trinity is not just a theological construct, it is a reality. It's not a doctrine, it's a community of persons. At the core of all reality is a community of persons so full of love that their love for one another could not help but overflow into creation and ultimately into salvation. But you see, if God is, if God is fundamentally in his very being love, then when he came into the world, he came from love. Jesus Christ came from the largesse of the Father's heart. We all know the verse. Most of us, for God so loved the world. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christmas is about the love of God. Jesus Christ came into the world so that we might know God's love and love him in return. He came from love. So Michael Reeves says, the Trinity is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty, and the joy behind all joy. The servant comes serving because he comes from love. But secondly, we see in these texts now, we'll get to the text a little bit more, that the servant comes serving because he comes not only from love, but he comes with love. He comes as the embodiment of love, of love in his very person. That is, in his manner and in his method. And I want to take a close look at Isaiah 42 because it so well describes his manner. Let's read it again. A few of the verses there, beginning in verse 1. God says, Behold my servant, my chosen, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And a bruised reed he will not break. And a faint, faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint, be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth. Now, okay, notice there how the beginning in verse 1 and the ending in verses 4 and even a little bit in verse 3, both the beginning and the ending of the passage is the same. It speaks of the ultimate triumph of the servant bringing justice to the whole world. And justice is an important biblical concept. This is the third week, by the way, 
uh, third time in three weeks where we've been confronted with this word. And all four of the passages that we chose from Isaiah, chapter 9, chapter 11, 42 and 53 here, and next week, chapter 61, in all of these explicit, you know, Christological pointing to Jesus passages, justice is central to, to every single one of them. Because justice is central to the reason why he came into the world in the first place. And it refers to an intervention, a correction of things that are wrong, back to things being in a state of being right. The root of all the world, all the wrong in the world is sin. We were made in God's image. And so we were made to be like God, to be outward looking with our love as God is. However, we see in Genesis that our love is turned away from God and towards ourselves. Luther describes sin as a person curved in on himself, not, no longer outgoingly loving like God, but inward looking and fundamentally self-obsessed and needy and introspective, which is pride, pride. And sin results in a world then that, that is wrong and needs to be set right because of the collective selfishness of humanity. Justice is the work of righting all the wrong. God's people, Israel, were given this assignment at the very beginning of the book of this prophecy, Isaiah comes to them even. It's very important, Isaiah. He comes at the very beginning, in the very first chapter, in his introduction to his sermon, he comes and he says, he wants them to see, he confronts them about how even their religion and their morality had furthered the wrong in the world and not been a part of making things right. And so he says to them, if you don't believe me, this is chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. You can look it up later, but here's what he says. He says to God's people, he says, stop doing church. I'm tired of your worship services. I'm not paying attention to your prayer meetings. Not until you cease to do evil and learn to do good and seek justice. And as God's servant, the whole nation had failed in this regard. And we should see ourselves here too. The mess we've made of the world is so far advanced. It's so systemic. It's so overwhelming. It's like Ashley prayed a minute ago. It's beyond our powers of correction. And so, where we have failed, God promises to send another servant, the servant. And he, not us, he would be the one who would ultimately set things right again. And the servant's mission here is very clearly stated. It is to establish justice in the earth. Verses 1 and then verses 3 and 4. But that mission makes the method of the mission so surprising. See, if you just read verse 1 and verse 4, it's hard to anticipate verses 2 and 3. Because it destroys all our categories. I mean, the only way that, that we can imagine seeking justice for the earth is with power and politics. But these are just a magnification of our proud, proud self-salvation. They don't solve the problem. They're part of the problem. They only make things work that, worse. And that's why the servant would do it differently. It says here in verses 2 and 3 that he would come with humility and love, with profound gentleness and kindness. He wouldn't even raise his voice. And it would be his softness and not his strength that would win the day. So let's just stop for a minute and look at those verses and digest this. Can we do that? Here's what I want you to see. This is something that is worth full stop and pondering for a moment. That the way of the Spirit, that true greatness, right? That kingdom power that triumphs over evil, it has a distinctive character and feel. And it's so unlike anything else in the world. It's so without precedent that the only way to describe it is negatively. You see that there in those verses? It's described negatively. It's actually a, a literary device that, that is used because it's without precedent. And so there's nothing to compare it to. You can only compare it to what it's not. 
He says, this kind of kingdom power, the way of the spirit, true greatness, the, the, the power that triumphs over the world, it doesn't break off those who are already bruised. It doesn't snuff out those who are already barely hanging on. It's not brash or loud or showy. It's not aggressive or domineering or demanding. Rather, character and the lifestyle that mirrors the servant is understated and patient and slow and hospitable to the weak and the struggler and profoundly encouraging and caring and hopeful. Don't you want to be like that? In, in the Jonathan Edwards sermon that I referred to last week about the excellency of Jesus, Edwards says if there's a person who has power or wealth, but they're still humble and they serve others, he put it this way, he said, then a great person is even greater when they don't act great. Does that mean, right? A great person, when they don't act great becomes even greater. Uh, there's a story about Alfred Vanderbilt, who is the heir of the Vanderbilt fortune, who was traveling on the Lusitania uh, in 1915, the, cru- the cruise liner ship, which was torpedoed by the Germans. Uh, and as a first-class passenger, as the ship was going down, he was given a life preserver and a spot on the lifeboat. He was given particular privilege uh, and, and amenities, as they say. Uh, but he gave up his spot on the lifeboat. He gave up his life belt to a nurse and made sure that she found her way into one of the lifeboats, even though he himself couldn't swim. And when the ship went down, he spent the, the very last moments making sure as many other people were led to safety as possible. And as the ship went down, he was lost at sea. And it made the news. They reported on it for weeks. People were amazed that a great man like that would act so selfishly. It made him even greater in their eyes. And as remarkable as that story is, is nothing compared to this servant who truly possesses all power and authority in heaven and earth, but who comes acting so gently. This one who is God, the most high, but who has come as the most low. He is greater, being great, but not acting great. This text from Isaiah is, of course, attributed to Jesus in Matthew 12. I didn't plan it this way. We read Matthew 12 in our community Bible reading this past Tuesday, which is really neat. Paul describes Jesus as the grace and goodness of the, and the love of God in physical form. He described himself, we read uh, also in Matthew 11, as gentle and lowly. And the contention of Dane Ortland's book with that title is that the whole section in Matthew 11 and 12 there, beginning with Jesus' description of himself and ending with Matthew's attributing Isaiah 42 to him, is the one place in the whole Bible where God pulls back the veil and lets us see into the core of who he is. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And if you want to know what Jesus is like, you look at that passage in Matthew 11 and 12, because it's there that Jesus pulls back the veil and lets us see into the core of his heart. And here's what Dane Ortland says. What do we see? He says, we see meekness, humility, gentleness. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Jesus is great enough to become low for us. And in that text in Matthew, Jesus is contrasted with the religious leaders who are finger-wagging. They yell at people for breaking the rules. They use their spiritual, spiritual authority to condemn others and keep them in line. They crush the weak under all of their laws, but not Jesus. He's the opposite of all of that. And it's a reminder to us 
especially those of us who have been in the church for a long time, that without great care, becoming more religious, you can end up being less like him. Jesus came serving because he came in love. He came to win the world through meekness because that is how the world is won, with love. But lastly, the servant comes serving because he comes from love and with love and comes to love. His mission was love. And now, very briefly, let's turn to Isaiah 53, and we're just going to take the 40,000-foot view of this text. The angel's message to Joseph which the ship's family read to us earlier, is very clear that Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins. The root problem is sin. You can't solve the problem of oppression and injustice without dealing with sin. Justice is the work of making things right, but you have to first understand what went wrong. And at the bottom, what went wrong was our relationship with God. And until that is right, nothing will be right. And so the servant would come, we're told here in this text, and put everything in the world in right relation to everything else by first making things right between God and man again through his own sacrificial death. John Stott said that the whole truth of the Bible is right here, that this is the truth that the whole Bible is telling, and he put it like this, that sin is man substituting himself for God, asserting himself against God, and putting himself where only God deserves to be, Salvation is God substituting himself for man, sacrificing himself, and putting himself where only man deserves to be. Let me say that again. That sin is man substituting himself for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for man, sacrificing himself, and putting himself where only man deserves to be. And that's a great summary of Isaiah 53. You see it here. It's, it's laid out in, in so many different ways as you work your way through the text. But the heart of what is wrong with the world, as I've said, is sin. And sin is human pride and all the projects that flow from it and all the attempts to supplant God and take control of life for ourselves. That is the fountain of all the bad, man substituting himself for God. A mom substituting herself for God in the life of her kids. A pastor substituting himself for Jesus in the church. And the result is broken relationships and alienation and dysfunction between a mom and her kids, between a pastor and the church. But the undoing of sin is divine humility. God substituting himself for man. And that's what all of this language here is about. Look in verses 4 through 6. It really is the heart there. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So the good news of Christianity is that God and Jesus has taken the record of our sins upon himself and paid for them with his own blood. When Jesus hung upon the cross, he was there as us in our place where only we deserve to be. He died the death that we deserve to die. He died so that we could live. He was punished so that we could be forgiven. He was crushed so that we could be made whole. He endured God's wrath so that we could be at peace with God, okay? If sin is the problem, if sin is selfishness, if it's a you for me, your life for my life demand, then sin can only be overcome through radical self-giving, my life for your life love. And the cross is the supreme example of love, we're told in 1 John. This great exchange, this act of substitution, we know this, we know it, we know, it, we know it instinctively. We know that the world turns on this kind of love. It's what all of the heroes in all of the stories do. They sacrifice themselves for others 
and a my life for your life love. And it is what wins the day. It's what, the sto- you know, it's what turns the story from tragedy to victory. It's what sits at the heart of all of the stories we tell. It's Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's Sydney in A Tale of Two Cities. It's Neo in The Matrix and Captain John Miller in Saving Private Ryan and Iron Man at, in Endgame. Right? Do I, do I need to go on? It's Harry Potter in The Deathly Hallows. It's Spock in the old Star Trek movies, but Kirk in the new one. (laughs) Did anybody catch that? Right? It's Bing Bong in Inside Out. Go look that one up later today. (laughs) It's Elsa in Frozen, right? I mentioned that last week. And so maybe that's the one to come back to again, that in that movie, you know, Disney, it just blows my mind that Disney knows this. Disney knows this and tells the story with more beauty than we do sometimes. And I, it makes me so jealous. I hate Disney for that. They should not tell the story better than we tell the story, but they do sometimes. And if you remember in the story, the crisis is that only an act of true love can unthaw a frozen heart. And the movie romanticizes the idea as we're prone to do at first. And Kristoff rushes to get Anna back to Hans, but then it's Kristoff who is Hans, or who's Anna's true love, you know, and there's this intrigue about how this is all going to work out, but it's actually when Hans, who is not her true love, but actually the villain, is drawing back the sword to kill Anna, and the moment when Elsa, her sister, steps in the way and takes the blow in her place. She sacrifices herself. And that's the act of true love that unleashes the magic to unfall the world. Dang it, Disney. (laughs) You know? The cross. The cross. We can't. Do you see what I'm trying? Do you see that we can't tell stories without this being a part of the stories we tell? The cross is the act of true love that can heal the whole world. And when you have a firsthand experience of God's me for you love, for you in Jesus on the cross, it can unthaw your heart and energize you towards me for you love too. The fatal flaw in Charles Dickens' story is that moralism is not enough to make you less Scroogey. Scrooge, you know, is visited by these ghosts and he's reminded of the past and he's given eyes to see the present and he is shown the reality of the future and his own death and he commits to being a better person. But I want to say to you, don't fall for it. That's not enough. That's not a gospel story. And ironically, ironically, I said it's the best Christmas movie, but it misses the whole point of Christmas, which is that we are so failed at love, we can never figure it out on our own. Love had to come to us. No offense to rocking around the Christmas tree, but love is not a sentimental feeling that you get this time of year. Love is a person. The suffering servant here, the king, the child, and in his dying love for you, you can learn to love too. You can become less scroogey. The servant can make you a servant too. But here's the thing I want to say, and I need to be done. But coming to the end here, this, what we're talking about here, is so earth-shattering. It is so overturning that because of God stepping into the world in Jesus Christ and stepping into the world to serve and ultimately to give his life for his people, the very shape of reality itself is now different. Do you know, I mean, that's a big statement, right? 
the, the, because of the cosmos rearranging truth of Christmas, the whole shape of reality itself is now different. The servant who came from love and with love and to love, his coming has changed everything. And you see that as you work your way through Isaiah 53. In that passage, there are actually five stanzas of three verses each. That's how it's arranged. Beginning in chapter 52, actually, verse 13. So if you want to mark them in your Bible, the first stanza is 52, 13 through 15. Second stanza is 53, 1 through 3. Third stanza is verses 4 through 6. The fourth stanza is, stanza is verse 7 through 9, and the fifth stanza is verses 10 through 12. And I just want to end this morning by just explaining, kind of um, just giving a very practical application from each of those stanzas, okay? Of the way that reality, the shape of reality itself has been rearranged because of this cosmos rearranging truth that we celebrate at Christmas. From the first stanza, chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, we learn that victory Because of the coming of the servant, victory often looks like defeat. The servant, we're told, would be wise. He would be victorious, but the people would be astonished. They would be surprised because it would not be within their normal reckoning. And which means for you and I that true success does not always look like success. Sometimes it looks like failure. True power feels like weakness. Conquering kings don't conquer. Suffering servants do. The setbacks in your life are often the greatest successes in the end. It's the way of God's working. The world turns on simple acts of kindness and love done on Main Street in Winter Haven, not what the politicians in Washington are doing, whatever those people are doing. Because victory often looks like defeat. But secondly, in the second stanza we learn that the extraordinary often appears ordinary. The servant would be plain, we're told there, verses one. No obvious beauty about him. And the people would despise him. They wouldn't think much of him. And so here's one of the, the things way we need to rearrange our thinking. The things that matter most in life are the things that we often dismiss. And we're often impressed with the stuff that doesn't matter at all. <laughs> we love hype. But hype is not the way of the Spirit. God is not in the whirlwind. He is not in the earthquake. He is not in the fire. He is in the low whisper. And most of the really good stuff is utterly unimpressive at first because there's a veil of ordinariness that you have to see through with eyes of faith. What looks insignificant at first glance might be a generationally, generational change event. When most people look back on their lives and they talk about the big moments, it's almost without exception they were very small moments in real time. A perfectly timed word of encouragement, small moments that are supercharged with eternal significance. I mean, the prophet Zechariah, we read again, He warned us this week to not despise the day of small things because with God, there are no small things. There are no small people. There are no small moments. There are no small places. From the third stanza, we learn that rescue often feels like more of the same. The servant would suffer as a substitute for the nation's sin And we want God to change our circumstances, let's be honest, but he wants to change us. He's saving us from our sins, the the angel told Joseph. And a lot of the time that means God saving you from your sins means leaving you in your circumstances. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Right? The things you're praying for aren't the real threat. You might be praying for rescue and God is answering those prayers, but nothing is changing, but you're changing. You're drawing closer to him because of what you're going through. You're becoming more and more of a friend to him and him a friend to you. You're becoming more watchful and grateful. You're changing, and that's what he wants. 
but rescue often feels like more of the same. From the fourth stanza, we learn. It gets better from here, better news now, that wrong is on the way out. The servant would suffer injustice. His death would be an act of, of oppression, we're told there in those verses. He would be killed, though he himself was innocent. The cosmic injustice of that event, though, means that all the other injustices have been broken into. There's a rectification that's coming where every wrong will be made right. Wrong is on the way out. I thought that might get an amen. That's a good thing. I mean, death, death is the consequence of sin. But what if, listen, if death is the consequence of sin, what if one who never sinned was subject to death? What would happen? Death would be destroyed. Or to paraphrase Lewis's famous phrase, death itself would start to work backwards, which is exactly what we see happening in the world today, even though it doesn't look like it at times. And the fifth, from the fifth stanza, what that means is that the world is now bent towards justice and resurrection. The servant would be satisfied, we're told there in those verses. He would be vindicated in the end. And here's the good news of Christianity. Jesus Christ died for our sins, but he rose again on the third day. And if Jesus is alive, then everything is going to be okay in the end. Now, I usually end by quoting a hymn. I hope you've caught that by now, if you haven't. That's my signal to you that you can close your Bibles and kind of we're wrapping up. But there's... (laughs) But instead of a hymn this morning, there's an Andrew Peterson song that perfectly sums up what I've been trying to say. It's called... After the last tear falls. And here's what it says. It says, after the last tear falls. After the last secret's told. After the last bullet tears through flesh and bone. After the last child starves and the last girl walks the boulevard. After the last year that's just too hard. There's love, 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 love. He goes on. He says, after the last disgrace. After the last lie to save some face. After the last brutal jab from a poisoned tongue. After the last dirty politician. After the last meal down at the mission, after the last lonely night in prison, there is love, love, love. He says all of those things, there's going to be a last for every one of those things. But he says, but in the end, the end is oceans and oceans of love and love again. And we'll see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of love and the lover of all. And we'll look back on those tears as old tales. I love that. The beginning of the world was love. The end of the world will be love too, but Christmas is the assurance that love has come to be with us in all of this mess that we're in right now, from now to then, in Jesus, and now in the Holy Spirit. And so we can love too. You know, Scrooge's word, humbug, describes a hoax. That's what that word means. It actually is a real word. It describes a fraud or a sham. But the lesson, of course, that he learns is that the real humbug, the real sham, the real hoax, the real humbug was his scrooginess. We love only because he's first loved us. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father, as we come to your table now to celebrate this meal that you have so graciously given to us, we come as people who would, in honesty, acknowledge to you that there's so many parts of our hearts, that even though we see over and over again the truth of your great love for us in Jesus Christ, that we are still slow to believe. Our hearts can be hard to these things because of sin and slow to believe them. And so we desperately need you. For some of us, 
Uh, we, we've never, we've never come to a place of repentance and faith ever before in our life. And we need you to break through by the power of your spirit to take those stony hearts and to tear in them and to turn them, transform them into a heart of flesh. But for all of us, we need a work of your spirit this morning to come and to soften us, to thaw our hearts out at the sight of you dying in love for us. That's exactly the opportunity you give us as we come and celebrate this meal together this morning. So we pray that as we gather around your table that you would remind us that we are a community birthed in love, sustained by love, destined for love. And so make us a city on a hill full of beautiful works of love that the world might see and come to know that your love for the world is real because of the way that we love one another. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, so now the Lord sends us as his people into the world as his servants. Uh, but the promise of this benediction is, is that we go, and what that song's trying to tell us is we go, um, if, as you go, don't go as a rowboat this week, go as a sailboat. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to go exhausting yourself to get yourself where you think you need to be. Go and trust the wind and the current of his love to take you where he means for you to go. Just take a breath, knowing that as you go, and you go to be his servant, that you go with the promise of his spirit and his presence and his love to go before you, to come behind you, to be with you in everything you do. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. We're getting close to Christmas. Go in his peace.